You're listening to the Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute's Natural Podcast, a podcast about natural products and the science and scientists of secondary metabolism. All right, welcome back to Natural Podcast. I did it. I'm keeping to my schedule. Uh, this should be coming out on the first Thursday of the month, just like I promised. Now I just have to make this whole on-time thing a habit. Um, I'm really not good at that, you guys. I'm trying really hard just for you uh, and the JGI comms team, but mostly you. Anyway, I'm really happy today to be handing over our interview with Dr. Elizabeth or Betsy Parkinson from Purdue University. She's in the Department of Chemistry and the Department of Medicinal Chemistry and Molecular Pharmacology there. We talked about several different pieces of her work, including bacterial quorum sensing and its effects on regulation of natural product biosynthetic pathways, which led her to a successfully funded JGI CSP project. We like those. Uh, and, and we also got to talk about her work at her university on graduate student mental health uh, and an outreach program to get kids interested in microbiology and microbial chemistry. All good stuff. And I hope you enjoy it. And just to remind you, you can get transcripts and show notes with links to papers around the science we talked about at naturalprodcast.com. So here's Betsy Parkinson. Well, welcome. Uh, Dr. Uh, Betsy Parkinson is joining us today, who is an assistant professor at Purdue University, and she has joint appointments in the organic chem- or in the organic chemistry division, chemistry department, as well as the medicinal and molecular pharmacology uh, department as well. So welcome uh, to today's podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here. Happy to have you do it. So um, I don't know how we start out. What are, where, where, where are we going to go from here? Well, how about um, you just give us a little bit of your background? Because you do, you're you're classically trained um, as a synthetic chemist. Yes. And then, do you want to tell us a little bit about you know you you're trained in chemistry and how you know what sparked your interest in natural products? Sure, definitely. So I got my PhD with Paul Hergenother at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and when I was working with him, I was working on the natural product deoxyniboquinone, which actually comes from a marine bacteria. And so I was working on chemically synthesizing and making derivatives of this to test its anti-cancer agent properties. And on the one hand, it was a really great training and I learned a lot, but oftentimes it would be very frustrating how many steps it would take to actually get to that product. And so this is like real synthetic chemistry, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh So palladium catalyzed cross coupling, (laughs) all that jazz. Um, But I was in the same department as both Wilfred Vanderdonk and Doug Mitchell. And so I got a lot of exposure to natural products and got really interested in thinking about how bacteria actually are able to make some of these really interesting molecules, oftentimes much more efficiently than we can in the lab. And so that's kind Mm -hmm. of how I got interested in natural product biosynthesis. Um, I then went on to do a postdoc with Bill Metcalf, also at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Um, I had a two-body problem, and it was a really great opportunity <laughs> to get a training in natural products and be able to stick around with my partner as well. And so in Bill's lab, I got great exposure to working with streptomyces, learning more about kind of genome mining as well as isolation and a little bit of enzymology as well. Right, right, yeah. No, yeah, Bill Bill does it all. We, no, it's in, uh, a lot of people, I think, well... Maybe I'm older, but <laughs> I feel like a lot of people sort of hedge their way into natural products by, by starting out in, in synthesis and, and uh, 
than discovering more, <laughs> I don't know, practical or interesting <laughs> things that are happening with the molecules that you're trying to build. Yeah. 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 Do, do you think your synthesis background uh, influences a lot of what you do? Oh, it definitely influences a lot yeah. of what I do. I mean, it's it's been really fun to kind of merge the chemical synthesis with some of the biosynthesis, getting to kind of get the best of both worlds. Because I feel like there's some areas where chemical synthesis is actually might be better, especially Mm -hmm. in really low yielding products. We're interested in kind of some of the hormones that streptomyces use and isolating those. It's not really terribly feasible. And so in that sense, that allows us to do that. But on the other hand, we've, we're also really interested in enzymes to do some of the reactions that chemists find really challenging. So that kind of balance is really fun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you're like the best of both worlds. You can, you can tackle it all. <laughs> We're trying to. <laughs> so I was reading on, on your website that, you're, you know, speaking of hormones, that you're also using hormones as sort of this, this chemical communication signal. Yes. And, you know, using these hormones as a way that bacteria can talk to each other and then upregulate or trigger some of these, these cryptic clusters, or these biosynthetic clusters. We don't really yeah. know what they make. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. So we are really interested in some of the gamma butyrolactone and butenolide type hormones. And so these hormones actually oftentimes will bind to receptors within biosynthetic gene clusters. And um, specifically these TET R type repressors that oftentimes turn off these biosynthetic gene clusters. And Mm -hmm. so we've been really interested in trying to kind of find new hormones that can activate receptors and clusters that haven't previously been explored. And so we are chemically synthesizing these in order to then actually put them onto the bacteria to see if we can then see changes. And we're primarily doing this by mass spec, seeing different levels go up and down. We're pretty early on in that project. Um, I will fully admit that, but it's it's been fun so far trying to kind of play with that a little bit. So I guess the organisms you're working with to see how they respond, um, where do they come from? Yeah, that's a really great question. So we do a couple of different things. Most of them are actinobacteria. And so we get a lot of them from kind of databases of organisms. So things like the NRRL database or online catalog, I guess. So we've also... um, been able to get soils from Purdue campus itself and been able to actually had several undergrads from the lab go out and get soil from different areas around their dorm and things like that. And we've been able to isolate new bacteria from that as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so that I'm not ignorant. Is there a difference in concept between, so, so we just talked to, to Aaron Prairie and, and we were talking about, um, signaling molecules and is there, is there a difference between a hormone and a signaling molecule and a quorum sensing molecule or great a, question? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, they're all kind of the same thing. I mean, oftentimes these yeah. GBLs are also called quorum they're, sensing. They're ways agents. that bacteria communicate with one another. Exactly. Right? And they're also involved. So they're also involved in sporulation and other aspects of the life cycle, but we're just particularly interested in their connection to these biosynthetic gene clusters. Okay. So, 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 um, maybe if we, if we talk in a really simple way, the idea here is then that the bacteria are growing, they're sort of what excreting at a, at a, at a base level, these signaling molecules. And as, as they grow up more signaling 
more singly molecules are there. And so at a certain point, they're more detectable to the other organisms and they, they kind of, I don't know, hear each other. Not, it's, it's chemistry, right? <laughs> Not exactly. Yeah. yeah. So chemicals are their way of talking. Um, right, right. You, you bring up an excellent point, though, and I think this is an area that's a little bit unclear whether for streptomyces and actinos, whether they can crosstalk with these guys. And so mm-hmm. there have been a couple of examples where they show crosstalk, but mm-hmm. oftentimes mm-hmm. what's been shown to date is it's more kind of a quorum sensing within a single species. Within a species yeah. genus? So we don't know yet. Yeah, okay. I will fully hmm. admit. Okay, so. okay, cool. So they've very much developed their own language based on... Sure. Yeah, it's, exactly. they've evolved. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. I guess I, I also have a, a pretty ignorant question. So if you have these <laughs> organisms in a, a soil sample, yes. how does that signal move from one? Because, I mean, the organisms yeah. don't necessarily move. They're not moving. No, they definitely aren't. Mm-hmm. And so this is a really great question. Um, I think that there is diffusion through the soil, um, sure. but I think that that's something we don't have a great sense of. It how far they really can diffuse. These are generally very potent, so picomolar to nanomolar levels, so they don't have to get a ton in order to sense that signal, but it's a great question, not naive at all. All right, picomolar, you might have to tell people what that number is. <laughs> um, so micromolar, 10 to the negative 6th, nanomolar, 10 to the negative ninth. picomolar, mm-hmm. 10 to the negative 12th. Yeah, so, so very... Very, very... Very uh, sensitive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exactly. like whispering. Exactly. <laughs> to each other. Mm-hmm. And that's what they are. They don't want other people to hear them talking, so... Other people, oh, okay. other bacteria, probably. <laughs> yeah, we're really anthropomorphizing now. But that's okay. I'm, I'm good at that. It's like, yeah, yeah. stand. <laughs> yeah. So I guess when, when you get a new organism or, or a genome, let's say, and you're looking at clusters, is there something that kind of triggers to you like, ooh, this one might need some kind of special communication to turn it on so that you can see the resulting product? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I think at this point, we can't predict whether or not one's going to be silent or not. So the the example I think of is really actinorodin and streptomyces coelacolor versus streptomyces lividens. They both have the genes. The genes are pretty much 100% identical. Mm-hmm. We don't know why one is expressed over the other. As far as whether we're interested in it or not, we are really looking for these TET-R-type receptors. And oftentimes also the biosynthetic genes for the hormones are also right next door to these receptors as well. Right. And so oftentimes the receptor the hormone biosynthetic gene cluster and a gene cluster for a natural product might be all together. And so that's how we decide kind of what we're going to look at. But these have also actually been shown to some of these um, hormones have been shown to regulate things very distal from them. So just because they're nearby doesn't necessarily mean they won't. They've been turned these clustered situated regulons but that's might not be quite as true as we once thought it was so it's very empirical then how you tackle this yeah Yeah. okay okay Mm -hmm. do you want to talk a little bit more what a tet receptor might be sure um if if we're looking through a genome how how you know yeah what would that what would that so a tet tet r receptor so those historically are tetracycline receptors and so They were originally, I think, discovered in E. coli, but we can kind of utilize blast searches or other things like that in order to find them. And so they they have a, they're actually a 
they have their own PFAM. And so oftentimes we'll just use BLAST and see other things with that PFAM and prioritize those. Does that answer your question? Um, I guess I guess for a more generalizable, like what does a TET-R receptor do? Yeah, that's a great question. So a TET-R receptor, so these are typically repressors. So typically they are expressed and then they will off, they will they usually are serve as dimers and then they will bind to certain sequences of DNA. And when they bind to those certain sequences of DNA, they for, they essentially make it not possible for the DNA polymerase to bind or the RNA polymerase to bind, excuse me, mm-hmm. and then express what, or transcribe whatever is downstream of that. And so these typically are repressors and then these hormones when they get to a certain level, are able to bind to these receptors. When they do that, they have a conformational change, which causes them to essentially fall off the DNA, allowing the RNA polymerase to come through and transcribe the genes downstream. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Mm-hmm. And then just to make this abundantly clear to yes. our audience, so the the goal here then is is to understand these regulatory mechanisms so that you can turn on the the natural product say clusters or or, or expression systems so exactly that you you get the molecules out of the organisms that you're trying to do exactly we want yeah. to understand can we utilize sequences of these tet r's to identify what molecule might bind them and then allow for mm-hmm. their release from the dna and transcription of biosynthetic chain clusters I don't want to jump on your Simbi talk too, 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 and I don't actually, I haven't even looked at your title. No, but, you're good. <laughs> do you have a favorite example of this or, or uh, 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 some kind of situation where this has worked for you that you might want to talk about? So as far as kind of, we are in very early days on this. And yeah, so we, we, we are um, right now kind of, we have just recently kind of finished the synthesis of the first set of these molecules and are exploring kind of the promiscuity of kind of one of the previously best studied SCBR receptors. And so previously, a lot of these have been studied, haven't been able to be studied very well, just because these hormones are produced at such low levels, it's hard to isolate them. Mm -hmm. And previous syntheses of these typically were not um, enantio or diastereomerically pure. Mm -hmm. And so there were studies that were done previously with SCBR, but because those molecules were oftentimes diastereometric mixtures, that makes it really challenging to actually interpret the data. And so we've been able to get uh, these... In terms of concentration. And, exactly. Yeah, the, de- the real details on it, yeah. And so that that's kind of where we are right now with the gamma-beta-lactone story. But, mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. So then tell us how this ties into your JGI project. <laughs> yeah, that's a fantastic question. And so with what we have been doing so far, we've primarily been working with kind of Characteri- previously characterized gamma-beta-lactone receptors. And now we really want to explore some of the ones that are unknown. And so mm-hmm. we've done the sequence similarity ana- network oh. analysis where we look for other receptors with sequence similarity to some of these known ones. What's really interesting is we have clusters that do cluster with known receptors, but we also have ones that are completely their own cluster. And so we're hypothesizing that the ones in clusters with known receptors might bind similar ligands. And so one of the similar proteins are going to bind similar similar molecules. molecules. Okay. Exactly. And so we're working with the JGI to actually explore some of 92 of these receptors, both from clusters with known and 
completely kind of orphan clusters, a different type of orphan clusters than we usually talk about. But, sure, 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 sure. Um, to see whether we can determine both the DNA they bind, because that's really useful in learning what biosynthetic gene clusters they might be regulating if they're regulating something that's distal from where they're actually produced. Right. And once we kind of figure that out, we have designed GFP-based plasmids where we can actually then put these in E. coli and add in our compounds of interest to start to understand whether this hypothesis is correct and whether we can kind of activate these utilizing some of these already synthesized molecules. Okay. These receptors are coming from uh, uh, which organisms? So these receptors are um, coming from, it's primarily actinobacteria, but mainly actinos. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are the systems that are, that are best understood right now. So you, you, yeah, if you can expand that, repertoire then yeah you're you're helping things a lot for sure so this will definitely add to the toolbox of ways that you know people are genome mining you have all these you know unknown clusters that if you see these regulatory elements that you kind of might have you know catalog of signals or molecules hormones you know these these forms of communication that you can just kind of add it in to yeah. your fermentation and try to see what, what happens. Th- that's exactly what we're trying to do. And we're also trying to generate syntheses of these molecules so that we can actually get enough to then ha- be happy to send them out to people for people to actually test that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Very cool. Uh, yeah. So, so that's a new JGI project just yes. came out uh, from a, a CSP yes. this year, yes. right? So, uh, how long do you expect that's going to take? Yeah. So it's, it's going to take a little bit of time. Um, so we are starting with doing DAPSeq and I, we're, mm-hmm. we're hoping, I think to get the DAPSeq done in this next year and then probably it'll take another year or two to get all the screening for, with the molecules and the sure. plasmids. My audience might not know what DAPSeq is. Okay. DNA affinity purification uh-huh. um, sequencing. And so yeah. the way this essentially works is you will mix together your receptor of interest with genomic DNA and then allow that to bind. Your receptor also typically has some sort of tag so that you can then pull down the receptor with that DNA still bound, wash away any unbound DNA and then release that DNA from your receptor and then sequence that in order to determine what sequences your receptor best binds. Beautiful explanation. Yeah, so so the goal here then is to figure out exactly what sequences your receptors are binding to exactly. in the DNA. So then you can then go back into the genome and look where those sequences are and then you can know what what those 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 um, uh, regulators are, are regulating. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Perfect, okay, great. So another project I think you have in the lab right now is kind of really bringing in again, you, you talked about synthesizing the hormones. And I think, you know, there's another project where you're also sort of using semi-synthesis yes. with some of these cyclic molecules. Yes. Mm-hmm. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, I'd love to. Um, so coming from a synthetic background, when I started doing a lot of this natural product production within bacteria, they're great at it, but it also, one of the things I got frustrated with is how little material you could get out. Yeah. And so one of the things that I got really interested in is actually seeing whether we could go into the genomes and predict what the natural product might actually be. And so we are specifically looking at non-ribosomal peptides, um, looking in genomes for ones that are cyclic. And so we do this, we've primarily been looking at NRPSs that are nearby what's called a 
PVB-like thioesterase. Okay. So in typical NRPSs, typically they end in a thioesterase. And so that thioesterase at the end of this large multimodular protein allows for release from the DNA, either as a linear... From the protein. Or from the protein, sorry. Thank you. Um, so when you release this from the protein, essentially you can release it in a couple of different ways. And so you can release it as a linear product, so just hydrolyzing. You can, or alternatively, you can use... Um, one of the nucleophilic residues on your peptide to cyclize. Mm -hmm. You can use the N-terminus to do kind of a head-to-tail peptide, or you can use a nucleophilic side chain to make other ring sizes. Um, when we were starting off this project, though, we wanted to be able to predict which one it was. And one of the challenges, at least right now, with thioesterases on these NRPSs is that it's actually pretty challenging to predict. For sure, mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. and so start every okay. single one. No, every single one is unique, so, right? Exactly. So, so you never really know exactly what you're going to do, and often you don't even know the, the molecule that's going to be produced by the the NRPS in the first place. Right? So, exactly. Yeah. Um, but what was really interesting is when I started my lab in 2018, several papers came out right in a row, all about this cyclase called SIR-E, and so SIR-E. Um, cyclizes a cyclic peptide called the cerugamides. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that it's a standalone enzyme, and it is, at least to date, all other kind of examples that have gene clusters with associated molecules that have P these PBB-like thioesterases are all head-to-tail cyclized. There are only about 10 okay. examples, but we thought that that was an interesting thing to start with. Yeah. So we utilize these um, PBB-like thioesterases as kind of what we initiated our search around. And so we found examples of those and then looked for NRPSs nearby. And then we used both anti-smash and PRISM predictions to get an idea of what that NRPS peptide might actually look like. Mm -hmm. We fully admit that these are natural product inspired, not true natural products, because sure. obviously those predictions are not perfect. But what we were able to do is we, from just an initial set of 500 of these PBB thioesterases, we were actually able to find approximately 300 with NRPSs nearby. And of those, once we did the predictions, about 140 unique cyclic peptides. And from that, about 130 of them were not previously known. So, wow. Very cool. And those are all coming from actinobacteria? Or? Those are not all coming from actinos. So that we kind of have a little bit wider spread since we're just doing bioinformatics searches. The majority of them are actinos, but not all of them are. Interesting. Okay. okay. Interesting. Um, do you want to say a little bit about what a PBP is? Yeah. A PBP binding protein? Yeah. So PBP is a penicillin binding protein. And so most people think of this as the targets of penicillin, so very important in that peptidoglycan cross-linking. Mm -hmm. um, these enzymes show a lot of similarity to them in the, um, in the primary structure. However, the reaction that they perform is different. So they're not doing that cross-linking, they're instead doing a cyclization reaction. Got it. Got Interesting. It. Do they still have the active site serine? They do still have an active site serine. They have the full tetrad that are found in PVBs. So. Okay. Wow, that's uh -huh. really that's interesting. That's, yeah. Well, I guess with with these cyclic natural product inspired uh, molecules that you have, what kind of assays are you you testing them in? Because a lot of yeah. these compounds really are are bioactive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's a really great question. And so 
within the lab, we have both antibiotic assays for escape pathogens as well as anti-cancer assays. And so we've screened them for both of those. And we've actually found a decent number with decent antibiotic activity. Um, We haven't found any with anti-cancer, but that's, you know, it is what it is. We also are collaborating with others to screen and other assays. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have an assay you like, we'd love to send you a plate of cyclic peptides to test. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there are people who listen to this who have assays. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Great. No, I think that that's remarkable. And then you have the capability and the flexibility to really alter residues um, and then also look to see, is it accepted? Can it be cyclized? And I, I think that really does a beautiful job of marrying synthetic chemistry, building these products that then you can then apply enzymatic reactions to form form that product and then test it mm-hmm. yeah. an appreciable yield. Yeah. I guess the other thing that's kind of exciting is we've actually been able to find ones that can do cyclic tetrapeptides, which are really challenging to make chemi- chemically. So that's been a really exciting part of this journey is finding these enzymes that are capable of making those strain ring systems. Huh. Why is it just because of just ring strain or is it, I guess, like what, what's the efficiency between maybe a tetrapeptide versus a pentapeptide? So for chemical synthesis, mm-hmm. a pentapeptide is so much easier to make. Um, really? The re- well, so one of the issues is in order to make the tetrapeptide, that's a 12-membered ring and there's extreme ring strain in 12-membered rings. You also have oh. to... Um, change the amide conformation, so cis versus trans, in order to cyclize at that small of a ring, which is highly unfavorable. Oh. Huh. I did not know that. Mm-mm. That's cool. But nature can do this. But nature can do it much better than a lot of synthetic chemists. Shh, don't tell my colleagues. <laughs> we won't know. <laughs> no, it'll be our secret. <laughs> Yeah, with our hundreds of listeners. <laughs> no, but that's interesting that nature has evolved an enzyme that actually can can use that. So could yeah. I guess for from for synthetic chemists though too, can you use the active site of that enzyme in catalysis or you know designing sort of a, a synthetic reaction that kind of mimics what nature has evolved? Yeah, that's a really good question. So you're asking, could we try and do this with something that's smaller than the enzyme? Do some sort of or bioorganic type catalyst. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. That's a that's a good question. I will fully admit that we are still trying to figure out why this particular enzyme can do these small rings. And so I think we need a better understanding of that. Um, we have a crystal structure and we're working on getting co-crystals to understand it. And maybe after that, when we have a better understanding of how it does this, it might be possible. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm just trying to think, because you are primarily wanting to focus on the research side of things, correct? Why? What are you thinking? No, I just, I just am thinking about when I think about the other things that I do. I'm just the other hats I wear, but what other hats do you wear? Yeah, what other hats? How many hats do you have? <laughs> um, well, obviously I teach, but the other thing that's kind of been a big thing for me is thinking about mental health for graduate students. And so during okay. the time that I have been an assistant professor with the support of my department head, we've actually made a graduate student mental health committee and we're trying to help more with that. Cause I feel like that's an area that's, really a huge area of unmet need within our community and thinking about how best to tackle these sorts of issues. And I think they were really brought about, we all became more aware of it during COVID, but even pre COVID 
It was, yeah, it was it creeping, was, and I think oh, yeah, it was I mean, really hot. Yeah, gra- graduate school is, is a pressured environment, right? And yes. so there's always, yeah. Uh, it's tough. Yeah, it's definitely tough. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I have my own issues, right? So um, w- what is a committee, or, or what, what do you do for that? Yeah, so we're doing a couple of different things. So one of the things that I'm really proud of is we've been able to bring a CAPS therapist, um, CAPS, y'all don't know what CAPS is. We've been yeah. able to bring therapists from the, the university to actually come to our department once mm-hmm. a week and have kind of, they're called let's talk sessions where grads, well, any student, grad student or undergrad can go and actually have kind of their 15 minute blocks. And so they're not truth there. They're not therapy. They're times to talk, go and talk to someone about what, kind of what might be going on in your life and what options you have to seek. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the things we've done. And one of the other things we're working on doing right now is actually developing a set of kind of mental health advisors. So these would be faculty members, staff members, and senior graduate students who want to participate, Mm -hmm. who obviously are not therapists, but are trained in mental health awareness by the mental health America first aid training and be people that students can go and talk to if they are having issues and can help them kind of find the right resources. Find the help they need. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. Okay. That's that's a great resource to have. I mean, that's that's so important. Really, really important. And it's great. The department supports that and recognizes that. And because it is, I mean, with COVID, I, I just, it's like Dan was saying, you know, grad school is difficult and that just led a whole nother, level of complexity and I guess the other thing that is kind of fun that we've started that is a different subject um, is our from microbes to medicines lab so this is we've been working with both high schools as well as local children's museums so that kids Mm -hmm. can actually isolate bacteria from their own backyards oh okay We're, we're it's it's been really fun to kind of work with them so we do these lab kit in the boxes that we've sent around the country so we've sent them to schools in alabama illinois indiana tennessee kind of so that high school students can get a chance to actually learn a little bit more about how these microbes are isolated but also learn a little bit more about where antibiotics actually come from and so that's been really fun and so if you have a high school that wants to do this, <laughs> mm-hmm. but where can they, where can these high schools go to learn more about this? They can go to my website. Okay. So parkinsonlab.com. Sorry, quick interruption here. I just want to point out that Betsy misspoke and the lab website is parkinsonlaboratory.com. Uh, you can get that link at the show notes at naturalpodcast.com. Perfect. Great. Okay. Is it just kids that can get those high schools? <laughs> um, we are focusing on high schools and children's museums. We are unfortunately cannot um, send elsewhere at this point due to restrictions on money. Got it. Fair Got enough. It. Yeah. Okay, great. I guess tell me about the stepwise process on, on this learning experience. Yeah, so there are two different processes. So for the children's museums and things like that, it really is. We give them a plate, they bring in their soil, they plate it, and then they take it home and Got they watch it. Yeah. it. And the Petri dish. And yep. the Petri dish they take home. And essentially, for the for the younger students, we obviously can't put any antibiotics or antifungals in there. Mm-hmm. So they're, they get just... 
That would be be an introduction and actual products right there. (laughs) Obviously not. We can't do that. So, so they get, they get interesting things that grow, but it's fun. They can send in pictures if they want and things like that. But for the high school students, we actually do put some antibiotics and we put cyclohexamid in there. They know that that's in there, Mm -hmm. obviously, Mm -hmm. and we take the proper safety precautions, but, um, they can choose if they want to send it back to us and we actually will do a little bit further evaluation, actually grow up extracts and test it. Cause one of the, okay. for the high school students, they have an extra step. So a couple of extra steps actually. So they played it, but then they re they choose one or two colonies to restreak and try and actually get a pure culture. Mm-hmm. And then the last step of it is actually they do a competition. So they choose two people and they actually do a cross streak to see whether one of their bacteria can kill the other. Make them fight. Yeah. Exactly. We do that in our lab. I know, we yeah, did, yeah. exactly. And you take bets on the side and you yeah. just... It makes a day go by faster. But it also makes it more fun because it's a competition. And I mean... Mm-hmm. In more than one way. Exactly. And so... And they can then, if they wish, send them back to us and we'll do like anal- PCR analysis to... S- sequence the 16 s and things like that just figure out what they actually might be very cool yeah, all right that's really neat yeah. so do you do you follow up with then the students to say hey there's the if, if they do send you back the plates and say oh we found yeah. you know these really cool molecules just to kind of keep them you know going and yeah that that we we definitely follow up with them afterwards and so we don't always have the ability to find the exact molecule that's active but if we do we try and keep them informed about it and we definitely tell them what type of organism they found and all of that for sure so so what what if a student the high school student um has you know gets your kit finds this really really interesting is there an opportunity potentially for them to come work in the lab and actually do some of these experiment experiments themselves in like an actual lab setting for students in indiana i'm going to say we could definitely probably do that because kind of the travel to and from Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's something that we we would like to be able to kind of offer that to anyone. There's obviously limitations right, on right, with... resources and things like mm-hmm. that. But, sure. but if a student was really interested in it, sure, we'd love to have them come and, you know. That'd be really kind of a neat thing to leverage with societies based on what component they might be interested in, like genomics, metabolomics. Yeah. Um, just basic chemistry, natural products chemistry, and seeing about fellowships or something just to kind of, you know, get... High school students yeah. really active and then bring are, them into the fold into natural products. Yeah. Are, are you familiar with Tiny Earth? I am familiar with Tiny Earth. Yeah, yeah. it's very similar. They, they're Got doing it. it at the college level. So. Yeah, 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 for sure. Right. And, and, and JJ is sequencing quite a few of the things that end up sort of. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay. Oh, awesome. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, if you get any cool strains and you need some, oh. need some help, we'll, we'll, we'll probably be able to help out. We'll, we'll, we'll probably take you up on that. Right, so be careful good. what you offer. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'll bend Nigel's ear and we'll get that to happen. Awesome. Sounds good. <laughs> Nigel, make it happen. <laughs> Very cool. Okay. Betsy, it was so awesome to talk to you today. This was, this was, a. Uh... A big, wide-ranging conversation. I'm really glad that we got the chance to do it. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you. Was, yeah. And congrats on the project. I mean, this is just exciting, yeah. the full gamut of, of everything. And thank you for what you do for the community. Mm-hmm. Of course. Thank you. Great. Thanks. Great. I'm Dan Udwery, and you've been listening to Natural Podcast, a podcast produced by the U.S. Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute, a DOE Office of Science user facility located at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And I'm Jackie Winter from the University of Utah. 
You can find links to transcripts, more information on this episode, and our other episodes at naturalprodcast.com. If you like what we're doing with Natural Podcast and you want to hear more science from JGI and its collaborators, check out JGI's other podcast, uh, Genome Insider, with my colleague, Menika Wilhelm. Uh, you know, if you like what we're doing here, you'll probably enjoy Genome Insider, too, so check it out. Our intro and outro music are by Jazzar. Please help spread the word by leaving a review of Natural Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you downloaded it. If you have a question or want to give us feedback, tweet us at JGI or to me at Dan Udwary. That's D-A-N-U-D-W-A-R-Y. I'm also on Mastodon with that name at mstdn.science. If you want to record and send us a question that we might play on air, please email us at jgi-coms. That's jgi-comms at lbl.gov. And because JGI is a user facility, if you're interested in partnering with us, we want to hear from you. We have projects in genome sequencing, DNA synthesis, transcriptomics, metabolomics, and natural products in plants, fungi, and microorganisms. If you want to collaborate, let us know. Find out more at jgi.doe.gov user-programs. Thanks, and see you next time. You definitely add into the tool bag or toolkit, toolbox. There we go. Tool bag. Yeah. <laughs> tool bag. <laughs> That I would have to use that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll put that in the blooper reel. <laughs>